Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 14. Today, we're going to talk about Miami and Miami-Dade County and the hurricanes, the great hurricane that hit Miami in 1926, but also we're going to talk about Miami-Dade County Emergency Management with Frank Rollison, the new emergency manager. And I'm here, as always, with Luke Doris, a weekend meteorologist here at Local 10 WPLG. Another week, Luke. Yes, sir. Another big hurricane. Lots to talk about. There is. Yeah, last week was just wild. It it shut down really quickly, thankfully. Uh, But a week ago, this this thing was all ramped up with Florence. Yes. Well, last week at this time, we thought it was a Category 4 hurricane coming Mm -hmm. into the Carolinas or a Category 3, something like that. Uh, From a wind standpoint, it did shut down. Of course, from a rain standpoint, not even uh, a little bit. So we'll talk about that in uh, just a moment. And also, this week is the anniversary of the Great Miami Hurricane of 1926. 92 years ago yesterday, a giant hurricane hit South Florida, which was mostly just Miami and Miami Beach at that time in terms of population. There were other towns, of course, and a few towns in Broward, like Fort Lauderdale and Dania and Hollywood, although the population was certainly centered in Miami. If it were to happen again, it would be the most expensive hurricane ever to hit the United States and in the record book, if in other words, you take all the hurricanes in the record book going back to 1851 and imagine exactly the same storm hitting the coast again, it would be the most expensive times about two. Whoa. It's just dramatically the granddaddy of the hurricanes that we know of that have happened and uh, based on where it hit. And today we're going to talk to a new Miami-Dade Emergency Manager, Frank Rollison, um, about uh, South Florida and and how we're prepared and uh, what emergency management's role is here in Miami-Dade County. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, of course, you've got to tune in to Local 10 in South Florida or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app for current information because what we say here today <laughs> isn't going to be good much past uh, today. And the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe, rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. All right, Luke. Uh, so what are your uh, reflections on, on uh, Florence from a meteorology standpoint? It's interesting, just today, if you go back and look at uh, weather Twitter, you'll find a bunch of the forecasts that were put out, like five-day forecasts, and the rain uh, forecast that the Weather Prediction Center had issued was just remarkable, spot on. I mean, just uh, unbelievable 30-inch-plus rain totals. Right, they I mean, had 30 to 40, or they had originally 20 to 30 with isolated 40, and then they ramped that up a little bit, and they ended up in the 30 to 40 range, right? Yeah, and and that was the biggest problem with this storm all along is it was just at a snail's pace uh, once it got up along the coast and Harvey-like rain totals along a hilly area uh, and the horrific flooding that would come from that flash flooding and then extended river flooding. On top of that, the storm surge threat that came with it. When we initially thought that this could be a Cat 4 upon landfall, thankfully it encountered some wind shear. And uh, the wind Barely. threat, yeah, yeah, still. Um, uh, th- that. What, what was the wind at landfall, do you know? 90 miles an hour. 90, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how much damage did we have with wind from it? Not a whole lot. I mean, you saw... Uh, uh, service stations, trees, you know, and a lot of trees, a lot of trees. But of course, some of the trees had to do with with the fact that the well, ground was saturated as well. Sure. Because Wilmington, North Carolina, 
you know, one of the areas, obviously, in the bullseye there had its wettest year on record up until the time that Florence came along. But, you know, going back to the intensity on Florence, two really interesting things, if you remember, when it suddenly organized and got strong, the uh, ocean temperatures under it were marginal. And it was not expected to intensify that quickly. It was expected Mm -hmm. to intensify quickly, but farther along where the water temperatures were warmer. So you had that happen on the front end. And on the back end, we had it just kind of refuse to pull itself back together when it was over extremely warm water and what apparently was very low shear, although in the end some dry air at some level uh, got into it. We could see that on the satellite. But it was interesting that on both ends of the storm, the intensity forecast uh, did not verify. Sounds like one for the case study. Yes, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And uh, it also it is interesting, too, um, be interesting to talk to Matt Sikowski, Dr. Matt Sikowski, who uh, works at the Weather Channel, who did his Ph.D. on eyewall replacement cycles because mm-hmm. uh, Florence was one of those hurricanes that was just inclined to do eyewall replacement cycles. It seems like just after one would finish, another one would kind of look like it was starting, although when dry air is getting uh, mixed into the circulation, sometimes it fakes you out. So anyway, it would be interesting to to uh, know more about exactly what was going on, but you're right. And because of that, because it kept wanting to do these eyewall replacement cycles, it's a big storm. I mean, it, went, it sprawled out over right. a large area, and that was another, you know. Uh, yeah, every time you- there's an eyewall replacement cycle, the, the, the storm gets bigger. The, the strong winds extend farther from the center, is your point. And I believe that you've, I've heard you talk about how if a storm, it, it, its size will allow it to push more storm surge over a larger area rather than its intensity, rather than, you know, is, is it producing 140 miles per hour? Its size tends to be a bigger player. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely, because the intensity of the storm means the intensity somewhere in the storm where if we know that the strong winds, the winds of 40 miles per hour or more, extend out for 300 miles as opposed to 100 miles, that means there's 300 miles of strong winds pushing water, pushing ocean water toward the coast, which if, if the winds, the peak winds somewhere near the center are 120 or they're 90, it doesn't really make any difference when all that water is already moving that far out. Uh, away from the center. So, yes, the the size of the storm has a lot to do with the storm surge. And the fact that it weakened actually ended up doing two things. One is it did lower the storm surge some because you don't get that peak storm surge Mm -hmm. without those peak winds uh, right where the center approached the coast. The way the angle it came and everything, it turned out not to make a, a heck of a lot of difference. But the other thing that it did is it took the real wind damage out of the equation. Hmm. Right, because we didn't have a Category 4 storm coming up along the coast, raking uh, Wrightsville Beach, Topsail, Surf City, North Carolina, and down toward Myrtle Beach. Uh, we didn't have the devastating wind damage. We, oh, we, you know, we had plenty of devastating damage from water, but, but not from wind. Sure. So, uh, the, you know, an interesting thing is that we saw the tropics blow up, and suddenly everything that wanted to spin turned into a, a tropical storm. And uh, we had a, a clue that that, that was going to happen. You recall the Mike Ventress uh, MJO discussion that we did here on the podcast last month. I think it was last month or maybe it was August. Uh, the, you know, the MJO was in a very favorable mode. So 
MJO is this pulse that goes around the Earth. When it passes over in uh, uh, the active mode, it encourages rising air, so it encourages uh, thunderstorms to develop, and that's indeed what happened. Yeah, just the lining up, and it, it seemed like before this we had you know a relatively quiet season. It was the opposite. Yeah. We were talking about you know the potential of getting into an El Nino and, yeah. and sinking motion over the Atlantic. The opposite of what you want for hurricanes, and then it just like a just like that switch. Right, and uh, then it moved on, and now we're in this suppressed phase. It's called, and we noticed that it, uh, everything's kind of shut off, which yeah. which nobody's complaining about so um, so that's good so as it stands right now we're more or less on schedule for a normal season we're actually a little bit above but since we know that this coming week is likely to be quiet uh, we figure by the end of the month or so we'll, we'll get, kind of get back to about a normal season and remember that a normal to a below normal season was forecast so we'll see what happens in October I mean if another big storm blows up or something then the forecasts will all be wrong. But as of right now, they're, they're sort of on track. So let's uh, go ahead and, and uh, bring in Frank Rollison. As I said, uh, Frank is the brand new emergency manager at uh, Miami-Dade County, appointed by Mayor Carlos Jimenez, and was previously the city manager, or maybe it's the village manager at uh, North Bay Village uh, in Miami-Dade. And, but, but Frank has a lot of experience in government and emergency management has been around Miami-Dade County for a long time. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Well, welcome uh, to you two guys, and it's good to join you, and uh, we can kick it around with uh, Irma or preparations or whatever you'd like. Okay. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been in South Florida, and uh, what does your new job entail? Okay. Well, I was, uh, I'm a native. I was born here. And uh, I've seen the city, uh, born in the city and of Miami, and certainly I've gone through the changes uh, of this community from uh, back in the mid-40s and uh, grew up here as a child, and and, uh, and it was great. It was a great place to grow up. It was a small city-type feel, and, uh, of course, we've expanded into an international city uh, today. So... You know, pros and cons of growth, and that's just how it is. But, I mean, uh, I've made my life here with our family, and, and uh, it's been great. And, uh, you know, so career-wise, I joined the fire department in the mid-'60s and, and uh, came up through the ranks there. And I totaled, I guess, 40 years with the city of Miami, uh, both in the fire department and then in different uh, jobs and different uh, departments uh, after I left the uh, after I left the fire department and retired. And uh, Carlos Jimenez, who's now the mayor in uh, Dade County, was a fire chief, and I was a deputy chief. And then Carlos became the manager in the city of Miami, and I was a deputy manager with him. So we've been together back and forth. And um, and then, like you say, I've had uh, a stint as a uh, village manager in North Bay Village where we went through Irma there. So I saw that from a manager standpoint with the uh, pre-storm activities and the, uh, you know, recovery afterwards and, and uh, what we went through with that storm. And uh, and now I'm here. Frank. And, uh, it, uh, I apologize. Uh, so you mentioned that you're a native, so you've been here through many hurricanes, obviously. Yes. What are some of your most vivid memories when it comes to hurricanes in South Florida? 
Well, I'll tell you, let's go back to uh, Hurricane Donna. I was a young firefighter, yeah. young firefighter then, and uh, we went to a fire in during the middle of that storm at the Banana Supply Warehouse, which is now in Midtown, where Midtown is. And uh, I can remember the uh, bananas exploding inside the refrigeration places, <laughs> and us with the nozzles trying to get. Uh, uh, water on that fire, and the water would come out of the nozzle and make a quick left-hand turn that didn't go very wow. far. So that was, uh, and, and uh, when you say Donna, a friend of mine who had a, a, a Philly born during that, who named he named Donna, who uh, lived out in the Redland and they had a foal that was uh, born during that storm and named her uh, Donna. Yeah, Donna, so, Donna was a great hurricane. I mean, it, it demolished the Middle Keys and caused a lot of problems here because it was such a huge hurricane. It kind of took up the whole state of Florida. I remember Donna. Uh, and and that, that banana warehouse, I imagine, sat in Midtown because there was a train yard right there. That's it. Right? And that's why the, the warehouses it, were there. It, it butted right up against the uh, – everybody offloaded there as the trains came through. That's where the warehouses were. Yes. And yes. Banana Supply was right off 36th Street, about down to 34th Street, right in that area. Uh, on the uh, east side of the railroad track. So I'm sure, I was out of Station 6. I'm sure you remember uh, Andrew well, Frank. Oh, boy. Yes, I do. Uh, I spent the night for that one. I was in the fire department. I was a fire marshal at that time. And uh, we were in the uh, a city building, which was uh, 275 uh, 2nd Street at, at that point. And uh, Cesar Odeo was the manager, and we watched the storm through the windows of it. And I'll, I'll tell you one story quick after that. We took a ride. It came through at the night, and in the morning when it was clear enough for us to run out, we ran out and just you know, did a little reconnoiter through the city. And we came upon this bank, and the alarm was going off, and we went into the bank. The glass was blowing out, and there was money everywhere. They had left the money mm. in the uh, cash drawers for the tellers, <laughs> and it blew all around. I mean, there was just cash laying every place. So we gathered up all the cash we could gather up. I mean, there was coins and cash. We gathered up a whole bunch of cash and put it in some bags and just took it back to the office with us. And then I think that turned it over to the police department and they gave it to the bank later on. But that was kind of eerie. You know, you walk in there and the alarm's going and the sure. cash is laying all over the place. So. Sure. Frank, but Andrew was, uh, you know, Andrew was Andrew. I lost my home in that one. We were out for a year. Wow. We lived down south where that uh, little freighter blew ashore, came yeah. up with a storm surge. Yes. That was right down the street from our house. No kidding. I've that, seen that picture. And uh, Saga Bay, around, around Saga Bay somewhere, wasn't it? Well, it was right by the uh, where the Burger King headquarters oh, later yeah, well. became right there at 174th and, uh, right. and Old Cutler. Right, the Deering Estate. Right, near the Deering Estate. Right, the Deering Estates and Snowden's. Uh, the, the, remember Snowden's down there? Yes, 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 absolutely. So that's right where that was at. That's so that was, uh, you know, that was an event that uh, that it really changed. It was, it was one of those events in your lifetime that most people will never go through, fortunately. But it changes your whole mode of thinking about these storms. And I, I reflect back how, uh, back with the city, and I would meet people that said they had been through Andrew. And I said, "Really, where do you live?" And they said, "Well, we lived up on the Broward County line." 
and uh, we yeah. lost trees, and this really wasn't that bad. And I said, well, you know what? You really weren't through Andrew. You, you don't realize what the magnitude is. So people that think they've been through the storm because they're in a, a locale and then measure that, well, you know, I went through Andrew, so this is not going to be that bad. And that's the problem you have. And I think that's a part of a problem we face with uh, Matthew and with Irma is that people just don't, I talk to people, they don't think it was that bad. It's not, you know, why am I leaving? It's a bigger pain to, for me to get out of town or go somewhere. I think I'll just stay where I am. Yeah, well, it's a pain to get out of town, but it's a lot bigger pain if you go through something like oh, yeah. Andrew, as, as you know. And oh. on that point, Frank, at emergency management, um, and you, as you think about the hurricane problem here in South Florida, what's your biggest concern? I know there are a million things that you have to take care of that you think of, but what's the, the hardest one, and what are you really uh, concentrating on? Well, you know— I think the biggest problem that we, or the challenge that we face, is a combination of educating the public and communicating with the public at the point where we're making recommendations for them to either evacuate a a uh, one of the evacuation zones itself, or do you need to get out of the county? Are we, we going to have a wind event? Are we going to have a water event? Are we storm surge going to be this or that and the average person out there gets very confused when you talk about all these different elements and trying to give them the right information to make the best decisions in a short capsule of time is uh is one of our biggest challenges <clears throat> excuse me the technical part of the things that we do and 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 uh with the systems with fema and and the recovery and the departments knowing what their jobs are, those are relatively easy things to do. And, and unfortunately, we have enough practice at doing it over and over. But the connection with the public and the concerns with the inner city, with those that have less resources and don't have the capabilities to do the things that many of us take for granted, whether go to the store and stock up, people that are on food stamps or on these different programs don't have that ability to stock up. Uh, when we say, well, we'll put my family on a plane and I'll, they'll, they'll go out of town. Well, they don't have that ability to get on a plane and get out of town. And, and so what we end up with in the shelters mostly are those that are uh, from the inner cities or the ones that absolutely refuse until the last minute and then they're panicking and they got to go to some place. Yeah. Frank, but uh, oh, sorry. those are the issues that, that concern me the most is the protection of the most vulnerable. You were just talking about communicating with the public. And, you know, right. we live in weird times where we have all these different ways to get information right. Twitter, Facebook, TV, radio. Right. I mean, just a billion different ways. And it's tough to get a coherent message out that's easy for everybody to understand amid all the noise. We feel that in broadcasting. Do you feel that? And do you feel like you communicate with the public well? Do you have any maybe ideas of, of ways to make a coherent message? Well, we have, we have an app that we've developed uh, that you can load onto your phone from the county that actually came from uh, 
uh, Commissioner Cava was the one that came up with the idea that was this app was uh, instituted uh, a little bit before I came. I've been here about three months now. And we're working on fine-tuning that uh, because you're exactly right. The, the people that have the capability with the technology are looking at all different ways. But if you're going to communicate with the Creole community, with the Haitian community, you're going to be on the radio because that's where they get their information. And we need to, we need to keep in mind the mediums that get to the people uh, so it's not one shoe fits all. Some you can you send out texts and you send out emails and you have the Facebook and like you say the Twitter and and so forth. But you have to get back to some basics, which are the basic TV channels and the radio uh, to get information out to a lot of the masses. Frank, uh, later in the, the podcast here, we're going to talk about the great Miami hurricane of 1926. And, of course, uh, we talked about the last year was the 25th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew. Do you guys right. look back at past hurricanes and imagine if they happened again, what you would do as emergency managers and as a county, as a government? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I don't have a, a real good answer for that being here the short amount of time. I can tell you here in the EOC, the walls are lined with Andrew, with the newspaper articles, the photographs, that type of thing. And I think it it sort of sets a tone. You'd be surprised how many people that are in the emergency management business today that come here to the EOC for a meeting, and that is their first connection or inkling uh, with uh, Andrew. Yeah, I, 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 know the, the I, I know the hallways you mean there, Frank. And, yes, right. uh, you know, Andrew's far enough in the past now, I encounter this as well, that people that live here, uh, just so many people, amazingly people, mature people, are not really aware of the uh, epic thing that happened 26 years ago. And another thing you need to keep in mind is what a transient community we are, how it changes and ebbs and flows with people coming and going. It's not, it's not what I would call a, a bedroom community that's set in a bedrock that people are here. Like, you know, here I am, somebody born here and still here, and they look at me. People say, oh, you're one of the ones that didn't escape, or you're, you know, to meet somebody that's uh, a uh, Florida native is unusual. And uh, so... That whole aspect of what makes up our community, the dynamics of our community in general in South Florida, is one that's uh, very fluid. You know, Frank, after a major hurricane, something that always strikes me is you, you look at a Harvey, you look at a Katrina, you look at an Andrew, it's the level of just life in shambles afterward it's just you don't imagine it in a present day united states but it does it happens where people don't have homes they don't have water they don't have a way to yeah. communicate it's just totally alien in the devastation and there's a little bit of that going on some of that going on in north carolina just this week so in south Without florida how do we keep that from happening you know in in irma we learned that mobile phones they're not the hot ticket for an emergency communication system no. so so what are your thoughts as an emergency manager well, I think one of the things is that we live in in the uh, land of plenty, and we 
we go up and we exercise daily in a environment of almost no wants. I mean, when you think about what you know, you need something, you run to the store. You go here, you go. It's a very convenient lifestyle that the bulk of us live. And when you're thrown into the shambles that they face in Puerto Rico or in Haiti, uh, that is a foreign element to us altogether, as opposed to some of the people that live in those countries that face these types of needs for water and food and shelter on a regular basis. I mean, look at Haiti, uh, how long with the tent cities and what's going on, then you get hit with another one, and then, you know, Puerto Rico gets hit with another one, and and uh, it becomes a survival, more or less, way of life, and not something that the people that live in the inner city and, and the more middle-class affluent are used to having to respond to. And it is a shock that people are just like, you know, who? what happens is they look to government. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to fill this void that I'm facing? And Frank, more and more don't the you th- pressure is on the government. Don't you think that the, the, the fact that, the, as Irma proved, the uh, mobile phone system is really not an emergency, post-hurricane, dependable communication system? I mean, we, here we had a, essentially a Category 1 hurricane, barely right. a Category 1, and many, many people, I don't know what percentage of, of Miami-Dade County or percentage of South Florida didn't have mobile phone communications, but it was a very large percentage in right. a relatively minimal storm. Isn't that a huge public safety uh, issue uh, and a sort of social safety issue after a significant event that people can't communicate? Without a doubt. Without, without a doubt it is, and I, it's because we are tied to these things. And, I mean, you everywhere you go, you, a person's got the thing in their hand. They can't right. even walk down the street without holding this device, and you wonder how 10 years ago we lived without having this thing, and now we're dependent upon this. And I think that kind of dependency also leads to some of the problems we have on the preparation side, that somehow somebody's going to come or something is going to happen, this instantaneous relief we're going to get. And when you could, Brian, you can remember when years ago they said the first 72 is on you and what a backlash came from that. It was like they were being abandoned. They said... Mm-hmm. What do you mean the first 72 is on me? Somebody's got to be coming uh, to help me. And I think that these storms are starting to point out to people that there's a level of resiliency that you have to start building into your lifestyle because there is going to be a period of time that you are on your own. Frank, let's just talk about evacuations for for a moment because obviously that's a very important part of emergency management. Uh, Do you have a sense of how many people that were ordered evacuated and from a percentage standpoint actually did in Irma and, uh, you know, how the evacuation went. Do you guys evaluate it as being successful or do you evaluate it as uh, there's work to do? Well, um, there's definitely work to do. There was, I don't know if you've read the grand jury report uh, that came out just recently on uh, no, I haven't. the hurricane. Well, that's very interesting. And it, uh, also, Commissioner Cava did a uh, after uh, hurricane. I saw that. Report. Yes, I saw that. Yep. And and then we did one 
which is just now being published and sent out internally. And I've read those three, and when you look at them, how closely they tracked with what the grand jury saw as issues, what Commissioner Cava's group saw as issues, and then what we internally saw as issues here. And evacuation was, you know, between the evacuation and the sheltering were the two issues that that stood out in these two reports or three reports of areas that we need to address. One of the problems that I see is that when we tell people to get out of these different, we call them evacuation zones for the storm surge, as soon as you start to use that term evacuation, the people think not about getting out of that evacuation zone for storm surge, but I got to get out of Dade County. I got to get out of the state. I got to get on I-95. I'm being told to evacuate. And, you know, we've talked about maybe we should be talking about relocation out of these storm surge zones and not be talking about calling them evacuation zones. Evacuation is the action you're going to take to leave the zone, but we need you to relocate out of that zone. You don't have to leave town. You just need to get a little further inland or a little further north or a little further west. And that starts triggering the people going. And the other thing that's happening now with the gasoline situation is people now that I talk to are saying, you know what, we got to start leaving earlier. We got to get out of here. Well, look at the people in Florence that uh, went south. And then the thing's going to hook south, and they say, oh, now i got to go north. i got to travel up this way. And that happened in Irma, with people turning around and coming back down when they thought they were okay going up on the west coast. And then they're coming back home. Again oh, yeah, people went, went to Tampa right. and then turned around and came right. back in the middle of the night. Run That's out right. of gas, can't get any gas. Right. I mean, it's, it's – uh, and, and, you know, think about the gas situation. When we had – uh, the situation where we ended up, uh, what was it, Matthew? What did we do when we put in the, the law on the uh, generators at the gas station? That was station? Wilma. I forget. Wilma. Wilma. Okay, so we did that. Well, what did the gas station say? The gas station says, well, we had plenty of fuel in the ground, but we couldn't get it out because we didn't have electricity. So the legislature said, okay, we're going to make you have a generator. So through some form or another, where you, all of them had a generator or whatever, they got generators. Well, now the problem is we get the gas out of the tank, out of the ground, but I run out. I can't get replenished. So it's still a fuel problem. And then you can't get the trucks down from Port Everglades because they've moved the trucks out of harm's way. They've taken them somewhere else. And the port may be and, closed as well. And then the port is closed, and you're turning the, right. the, the tankers away. So the whole chain of depending upon fuel takes days to start to, you know, replenish that type of thing. And then with the sheltering, the people that don't leave or the people that have no intention of leaving and they're planning on going to shelters. Because I can tell you in the inner cities, they're not leaving. They don't have the means to leave. So they are planning on going to their shelter. And so if you miscommunicate which shelters are open or what sequence we're going in and what problems do we have with, uh, with, with uh, Irma. The people were standing out in lines in the heat in front of shelters that we had no intention of opening. But 
somehow the word got out that this is the the list of shelters got out, not what was being opening was getting out. Ah, and so people said, ah, oh, that's my shelter. I'll go stand there. They're going to open the shelter. Well, we weren't opening that shelter. So, again, you're back to communications again, getting the word to the people correctly what what is happening. And that is a challenge. Frank, it's definitely a challenge. I'm reading now. I've been studying up a little bit on this uh, 1926 hurricane, just going back and into the record books and and reading about it. And one thing that they talked about in an event was there's a high rise that was downtown. I bet Brian knows which high rise it is or was. And uh, the during Meyer, Meyer Kaiser Building, the Meyer it's Kaiser called today, it actually it was the Commonwealth uh, something or other building at that time, but they lopped off the top of it, and it's a shorter building. It's called the Meyer Kaiser Building. Well, it was a taller building back in the day when this hurricane hit, and people described it as doing the Charlton dance. They said it was just Charleston, Charleston yeah. excuse me, and yeah. uh, and just swaying like crazy. Now, it seems like, you know, the high-rises are really sturdy, well-built buildings, but, you know, you read stories like that. Are, are you concerned? Uh, that the high rises that we have now could be you know, susceptible to the wind and and uh, people maybe staying in them and how the wind could affect uh, these high rises. Well, I can tell you from my firefighter days, when you have an offshore wind of say ten to fifteen miles an hour, which is not an uncommon breeze that we've gotten on uh, on a regular day sure. here in South Florida. When you get downtown Miami and you get in those high-rise buildings and that air has to push through and compress between the buildings to catch up as the air goes around, it's not unusual for that airspeed up there to be 50, 60 miles an hour during a normal day. Mm. And you don't even think about that, you know. But that's what's going on. And then you compound that with a storm coming in. And people think, I'm going to get higher and higher and higher and I'm going to be protected from the storm surge and all this. But, you know, these buildings are built to certain standards, to certain wind loads, to certain uh, requirements in the building codes. And, you know, commercial enterprise dictates that you build to that level of the code where you pass the code. There's, you know, not people building things with that extra... 10% 10% or 15%, that's just the nature of the beast today. And so there's limits on all of these things. And, uh, you know, you get a storm or a tornado through. I mean, look at the tornado that went through downtown Miami. Uh, what was that, Brian, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. We had one that went right through downtown. And- yeah, it was very photogenic. It turned out not to be. Yep. But it does happen. It does happen that, that yeah. the, the and Certainly they come. The look rises. at the tornadoes with Andrew. Yes. Well, the, yeah, the wind swirls. Well, in any strong storm, you get these swirls of wind. Yeah. Frank, we're going to let you go, but, but it sounds to me like your bottom line is, uh, and your challenge and the challenge for all of us that live here and will live through the next hurricane, is to try and figure out how to be better informed. Is that correct? Uh, that's it. That's our, that, to me, is our number one challenge for us to be to get the message out. And what I try to tell the PIOs and the news media is that it's not what you think the message is. It's how the message is received at the other end. You need to sort of walk in the shoes of the fishermen. If somebody were to tell you this, would you understand and get the proper message that is being sent? Sometimes I think we complicate it too much. 
and sometimes you have to work to the lowest common denominator or make it very simple that these are the things that we want you to do. And I and and you know, Brian, I have to commend you and listening to your broadcasts of stuff over the years. Sometimes, you know, you reiterate the same things over and over and over. And I think that's part of what we need to do. And it's difficult for the mayor to do that because he has several press conferences and we put that word out. But it's so important that the news media, to me, get in tune with the same messages and whatever channel you're flipping to or whatever you're listening to, we're all sending the same message out to people. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes there's mixed messages out there, and that causes confusion. Well, it, did, yeah, it gets confusing. You're right. And, yes, the part of the art of communication is knowing under what circumstances <laughs> you have to repeat the message to be sure that people understand yeah. And, and yeah. have the support for the message. Frank Rollison, thank you so much for being with us. Hope to, uh, we never have met all these years, Frank, and, and, I, and I hope we can do that uh, sometime soon. Well, I, I hope we never have to meet under the <laughs> conditions that we're talking about. I tell people when I meet them, they say, oh, we're glad to meet you. And I say, well, you never want to see me again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's how it is. All right, well, Frank. I enjoyed being on with both of you. Thanks a thank lot. Thank you, Frank. Right. It's a pleasure. Frank, uh, be well and, and uh, Give our best to everybody there at Miami-Dade Emergency Will Management. Do. All right. So, I mean, there's no question about it that this is a multifaceted, extraordinary, extraordinarily complex city that we live in here in the community and, and metropolitan area. And this whole issue of messaging is such a challenge because you have such a, a variety of people that have so many different issues. And it's... It's such a different and more complex place than, than just about <laughs> any place that uh, you can imagine. So leading up to the hurricane, maybe spread this out over all channels, but earlier you were talking about the concern with the, the mobile devices, how this could be uh, just a nightmare, and it has been with Irma. So what's the solution there? Is it everybody get a transistor radio? Yes. That's, uh, that's the number one solution, that everybody get a transistor radio, the number Two solution is that, that emergency management and, and the county has non-electronic ways to communicate. Uh, one of the things that was proposed after Andrew was that they have a color-coded balloon system and high schools become information centers. So uh, you go to your local high school. Most people can walk to a local high school or a local school or something like that. For somewhere, there are hurricane information centers that people can go to, and that's where initially phones get set up so that people can call and, and, uh, and get information. And you put up huge balloons. So because the problem after a, a terrible hurricane is that as soon as you leave your home, you're disoriented about what street is what because nothing sure. looks the same anymore, right? So if you can see a balloon and kind of get a, a sense of how far away it is and that kind of thing, you know, you could have white balloons for ice and, and blue balloons for water and red balloons for medicine. You could have a variety of, of non-electronic communications systems that, that I think need to become part of the, the fabric uh, since two things are missing today. One is people don't have transistor radios. The other, they don't have landlines. And landlines, the kind of old phone system that was not electricity dependent, not over the cable system, not over the fiber optics, not the non-electricity dependent phone system 
that had a dial tone even after the power went out and even after the power was out for days. Uh, they, that doesn't exist in a lot of neighborhoods in most neighborhoods anymore. So, so we need to have non-electronic systems, non-battery dependent systems to replace that. The balloon idea, has that been implemented anywhere? Well, they, they did some of that after Andrew. I mean, we're talking 26 years ago, but I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, but they should. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I talked sense. about that uh, that many years ago in the w- a book I wrote uh, ten or eleven years ago. You were talking at one point, sorry about the uh, airships that can go up and transmit radio right. signals. Right. Well, yeah. Now they have yes, the, the, for emergency management, they they have blimps that that can act as repeaters to help emergency communications. That doesn't really help the public so much, but you could imagine uh, something like that. And and I know I know the mobile phone companies are working on it, but it's a very difficult problem. It's not sure. a robust system, just by, by definition. It's mm-hmm. not a robust system. This uh, podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. Okay, let's talk about 92 years ago. Uh, the great Miami hurricane made landfall. And this is uh, reading this story, actually, now 35 years ago, as is uh, one of the things that really got me interested in understanding hurricanes better. Uh, this gigantic hurricane, uh, like an Irma-type huge hurricane, Hurricane Donna-type huge hurricane, came ashore with the center of the eye over Palmetto Bay, today's Palmetto Bay, the Deering Estate in South Dade. Uh, Palmetto Bay wasn't there at the time, and the Deering Estate was there at the time, as a matter of fact, in 1926. It was called Perrine. Uh, back then, about six miles south of today's uh, Dadeland. By today's reckoning, the best estimates are it was 145 miles an hour of the winds at landfall, but it was giant. Just a huge one. Huge one because the winds blew really hard, damagingly hard throughout Broward County as well as— In Palm Dade. Beach County. And even in Palm Beach County, uh, they had uh, significant damage uh, from it. And it came ashore— about 6.45, 6.50 in the morning on a Saturday morning. So it was the 18th of September, 1926. If that storm happened again today, the estimates are it would do 200 to $250 billion worth of damage. That 250 number is about twice Katrina mm. and twice Harvey. Is that adjusted for today's uh, monetary rate? Yes, yes. So that's, a, that's imagine imagining that same hurricane in today's city. Gotcha. And in today's money, uh-huh. both. So uh, that's the estimate. At the, at the time, it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, but that was because the money was uh, very different. So, so all right, l- let me tell you a little story. Now, sit down, kids. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, the 1926, the winter of 1926, Miami was booming like nothing that we can imagine today. Uh, we think the city is booming today with all the high-rises, but so many people were coming to Miami, and they were building so fast that there were no hotels to stay in, and people were sleeping in their cars, and they set up these camps, uh, kind, of, kind of trailer park things, for people just to park their car and sleep, to have organized car sleeping centers. And one of the many things that came of that was – they had the idea of bringing in a big ship uh, and having it be a hotel. So it was like instantly build a hotel by bringing a big ship into the port of Miami. 
And uh, so what they did is they found this, this big ship, which has a long history, called the Prince Valdemar, and they cut windows in it so there could be a hotel ship. Well, bringing it in the Port of Miami by Watson Island, it was a very stormy day in January of 1926, a big northeast wind. And the northeast wind put these swells against the ship and put water in those new windows that they had put in it to make it a hotel, and it sunk. Oh, my gosh. And this huge ship sunk in the in the entrance to the Port of Miami. So now all the building materials that were coming into the Port of Miami to uh, build all these buildings that were under construction and to support all these people that had come down to work were stuck, not able to get into the port. And the pictures at the time see as far as you can see, you see these Brigantine freighters with their high masts all lined up on any coastline and way offshore because they can't get in because the Prince Valdemar has closed the port. Mm. And it took some months for that to happen. And that was the beginning of the end of the boom uh, that uh, a lot of construction companies went out of business and uh, economic problems came about because there were no building materials. And there are all kinds of great stories that, that about that. So that was... That was the framework. The, the, was the economy was, had been staggered. It was still going, but it had been staggered. And now the summer comes, and back then things calmed considerably in the summer because this is pre-air conditioning for almost everywhere. There was one theater downtown, the Olympia Theater, that had air conditioning. But that was it in the city, really, in terms of there was, nobody had it in their home in 1926. So now we get to September, and two days before uh, the storm hit, so it's uh, Thursday, September 16th, there is no mention of the hurricane in the Miami News. The Miami News was the uh, main paper at the time, was the afternoon paper. The Herald was the morning paper, but back then most people went to work, came home, sat down, and read their newspaper, and that's, that's, that's how they, they got the news. Then the day before, so this is now Friday, remember this storm is going to hit um, it actually hits Friday night. That Friday, at the top of the Miami News, the headline was Miami Warned of Tropical Storm. Well, back then, the words tropical storm didn't have a technical meaning. They meant a, just meant a storm out of the tropics. Mm -hmm. So kind of different than now. But in the lower corner on that front page of the paper, it said that readers could phone 4121 for information on the progress of the hurricane. So... There was a sense that there was a problem, but uh, the there wasn't. It wasn't like oh, this incredible thing is going to happen. They had put up what are called northeast storm warnings, which more or less equate to today's tropical storm warnings, but but uh, lesser than uh, less than a hurricane warning, northeast storm warning. So this storm hadn't uh, made itself very well known, where people from the islands. And the Caribbean could radio back and say, hey, listen, this thing's coming for you guys. Well, they did. Uh, it hit Grand Turk in the Turks and Caicos, and they knew it. And they knew that it was out there enough to ask Nassau to do, to do reports every two hours. And by doing reports every two hours, they could see how the winds were shifting and use that to figure out where the center of the storm mm -hmm. was, right? Uh, for whatever reason, which I've never seen the reason— uh, given, uh, Nassau only reported once at 1 p.m. And that was enough uh, to support the Northeast storm warnings, which they had issued uh, midday. But they really didn't know 
what was going on until that night. So at about 10 o'clock that night, the barometer downtown Miami at the Weather Bureau building, Richard Gray was the meteorologist in charge at the time. He notices the barometer is starting to fall like crazy. And he takes note of that, and he, and he figures out that a hurricane is coming. He doesn't know whether it's how big it is, how strong it is. Uh, he just knows that his barometer, uh, the bottom is falling out, and it's starting to get a little breezy mm. outside. So when people, back then, it was very common when you didn't know what was going on to pick up the phone and call the Weather Bureau. <laughs> like, yeah. what the heck is going on, right? And also, they distributed information by phone operators. So they would notify the phone exchange to please let the other operators on the system know that what the latest weather report is. So that meant that somebody in Hollywood could could pick up their phone, because remember, back then you didn't have dials. Mm-hmm. You picked up the phone and you told an operator how you wanted your call routed. So if you picked up the phone and talked to the operator, the operator could tell you what the weather forecast was. Okay. So that works. It worked. It worked. So that was how that was that was what they were doing at that time. But Richard Gray started telling people to be ready for hurricane force winds. He couldn't put up a hurricane warning. The hurricane warning could only be put up out of Washington. But he knew there was a hurricane coming. So finally, at 11.16, word came from Washington to put up a hurricane warning because the winds are already starting to blow. And uh, he goes up on the roof of the federal building downtown and runs up the hurricane flags. So back then, uh, they, they hoisted hurricane flags. And for many, many years, even after the flags became less important and we had electronic distribution, we would say hoist hurricane warnings. We don't say that so much anymore, sure. but that came from the fact that that was how people originally knew that there were hurricane warnings. There were two locations in Miami. One was downtown, right downtown at the federal building uh, where the office was. The other was there was a storm tower out on the bay, and they would hoist this the, the flags up on top of the storm tower, and that way anybody on Biscayne Boulevard or anybody in a boat could see what the alert was for wind. Well, I see two problems here. One is you're raising flags at <laughs> night right. and late at night. Right. I would imagine a lot of people going to bed earlier than this. And then the other one is are these people hurricane savvy with this big land boom, people coming in from maybe places – that don't get hurricanes. Yeah, so that was a big issue. Uh, one of the things I, I kind of skipped over was in July there was a hurricane. And the hurricane was a, was a devastating hurricane in the Bahamas, and it was felt on the southeast coast, but it ended up going ashore up in central Florida. Hmm. So that was the July hurricane. In early September, before this big hurricane came along, it was a tropical storm running around in the Bahamas, and they were a little bit paying attention to that in, in, in the Keys. And then this storm on top of that. So there was awareness, but I think your point is almost certainly very good, that you had this monstrous explosion of people since the last hurricane. The last significant hurricane to hit Miami itself was 1906. So it was 20 years before, and the city had uh, grown 10-ish fold in that time, Mm. something like that. So, okay, so here we go now. The wind is really blowing. The hurricane flags are, are up. Barometer is falling like a rock at about 10 millibars per hour. And at 1.50 in the morning, phone service goes out to Miami Beach. They can't, nobody can call the beach from the mainland anymore. Uh, there were two radio stations in town, or actually 
three, but two in Miami. The other was in what we call today North Miami Beach. Back then it was called Fulford. And the Fulford story is a whole great story. But radio station in Fulford blew over, and that was, and that was off the air. WIOD early uh, in the storm went off the air. And WQAM was the last one, but then they lost power in the middle of the storm. So there was no radio uh, available once the storm ended uh, the next day. Hurricane was moving fast, like 23 miles an hour, which is Andrew's speed. But it was so big that even though it started about midnight Friday night, it blew all day Saturday into Saturday night. Mm. And the winds tapered off later on Saturday. But the outer bands were still very strong at 8 p.m. on uh, on Saturday night at Jupiter up north of West Palm. They had a tornado come through from an outer band that did a lot of uh, damage. Just a monster. It was a monster. The, uh, the eye came in about 6.15 in the morning. Um, it was a little earlier than that at Coconut Grove, closer to the center because of the geometry of the eye. And there's a great story about two guys that uh, the eye comes along and they go out <clears throat> to have breakfast in the eye and the diner was still open on, on Biscayne Boulevard because on the first half of the storm, the wind was coming from the northeast and east. Well, that put the ocean water, just think about it, over Miami Beach. So Miami Beach had tr- significant damage on that first half because the ocean came through the hotels and was kind of washing over Miami Beach and it was deep in sand and, and the, the uh, ocean front was really significantly destroyed. But in terms of where the water was going from the ocean, it was going through, because the wind was sort of north of east, going through the gap south of Key Biscayne and piling up in the south end of Biscayne Bay. Okay. Now the hurricane goes through. Now the wind is coming from the south and southeast, and it's pushing all that water north in Biscayne Bay. Mm -hmm. That's the water on the back end of the storm that came over the bayfront and over the west side of Miami Beach because you have all this excess water piled up in the north end of the bay and went several blocks inland on the mainland. So in the back half of the storm, that's when you had the ocean cover Miami Beach, cover Biscayne Bay, and go several blocks in on the mainland. It was all ocean. Everything was ocean. Quite quite a, uh, a remarkable. Miami Beach is completely underwater. Completely underwater and ends up when the water drains off, three feet of sand. You're about three feet deep in sand. If you see the pictures of the cars, it's up to the windows on some of the cars uh, in Miami Beach, which is a lesson for Miami Beach. People that want to stay on the beach, uh, there are plenty of places to stay on the beach and be safe in a hurricane. But you're not going to go anywhere, so you'd be stuck with no power, no water, no communications, and really even no ability to walk because of the sand, uh, the deep sand in the, you know, in the street. I'm sorry, as you say that, what, what would be an example of a safe location? A, a high-rise? Well, yeah, so high-rises, they're not going anywhere, and if you stay on a third floor in the hallway on a third floor in a stairwell, you know, you're going to survive that just fine. The thing is, then you end up, and let's say you, you're lucky enough to be in a high-rise that has a parking garage that's elevated, and you can have your car in your parking garage. Your car will be okay. But you don't have any streets to drive on. Hmm. And it'll be a long time before you can clear the sand and debris off of these streets uh, if we're from a storm like this. right? So uh, on the, the bayfront in, in Miami, in Biscayne Boulevard, downtown Miami, 
all these ships and boats and debris and everything was pushed up by this uh, storm surge, about uh, eight feet uh, or so above the land there. And one of the ships was called the Rose Mahoney. And the Rose Mahoney was a big old ship that ended up right in Biscayne Boulevard. And it sat there for a long time while they tried to figure out how to get it out. One of the the features of the Rose Mahoney was its bow spur, which is this big thing that sticks out of the front of the ship. I, I must use it for loading or something. I'm, some shipping person <laughs> would have to tell me what. Hmm. Anyway, this bow spur was kind of blocking Biscayne Boulevard, and so they cut it off the Rose Mahoney, this big piece of wood. Well, remember the Prince Valdemar. Before this storm, the Prince Valdemar had been refloated, and was in the dock at the Port of Miami, and it survived. It survived the hurricane. Couldn't make a stormy day. Right. Survived this hurricane. Right. But they they uh, actually resurrected it after, and they used the Rose Mahoney bow spur as a mast for the center of the Prince of Aldemar, huh. and they put these decorations on these flags from the front to the top of, the, of this mast to the back, and it sat there for decades and decades and became the aquarium uh, uh, for Miami. And it was an attraction wow. at, at, in downtown Miami for many decades. It was very famous. Uh, and it, what was there was comprised of a combination of the original Prince Valdemar that began the end of the, the housing boom and the bow spur of the Rose Mahoney that, uh, that was a, a key visual feature of the aftermath of the great uh, hurricane of 1926. So anyway, I, I always like that. Uh, there were no radio stations in South Florida, so WDBO in, in Orlando became the station for, for information uh, here because they have a, a strong signal on uh, 580. I, I thought it was a 580 AM, of course. I thought it was interesting. Um, there was an editorial at the bottom of the Miami News the, the, the day published the day the hurricane hit, so they published it late in the day. They only got out one page, and the Miami Herald loaned them their presses for that one one page. But they uh, they put a little tiny editorial on that one page at the bottom. It was only one paragraph, but it ended, this is a time for a high degree of courage, but Miami has it. This is a time for unity of action. It's a crisis to be met and disposed of, which was interesting. And then the city was really substantially destroyed I and mean, it was the whole thing was a mess but they did it i mean what was so incredible is they actually did it and it was two years later that they built this landmark building the miami what today we call the miami dade county courthouse the dade county courthouse down on flagler street and miami avenue this very architecturally kind of distinctive building which is lost in the high rises now mm. but for many years it was a key uh, you know, architectural element on the skyline of Miami has that kind of pyramid on top. So they, they, you know, they got it enough together to build that in 1928, and then, and then the, uh, you know, the Great Depression came along and this collapse in 29, and and that kind of stopped everything for sure mm-hmm. at that time. But they were resilient people, uh, I must say, and um, they say that 95 percent of the buildings from Homestead to Deerfield back then, Deerfield Beach today, uh, were damaged or destroyed. Yeah, so some some of the stats, like I was going over some of what happened in Broward. Right, there were twelve thousand inhabitants in Broward, not not houses, 
inhabitants. Inhabitants, right. 3,500 buildings were severely destroyed or wiped out. There's right. nothing left. So to me, I don't know exactly how that translates, but basically most of the buildings were, were wiped out or severely damaged. Uh, winds were estimated to be about 135 miles per hour, but any uh, anemometer, what measures wind speed, uh, those were destroyed in the storm. And there's a crazy picture that I got in my head when I read this. The Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse, mm-hmm. the beach erosion was so severe, 20 feet down from the base of where it would normally be with the sand was scoured out by the storm. So I guess 20 feet of the lighthouse below normal sand was exposed from the storm. Um, and then the Hollywood Beach, uh, excuse, yeah, the Hollywood Beach Resort. What it was right. now the Hollywood Beach Resort. Right. I guess back then it was the Hollywood Hotel. Hollywood Hotel, yeah. Um, it's just this beautiful, magnificent-looking building, and right. it just it's it was stood. Obviously, it's still there, but it took incredible uh, 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 sand. The sand piled up into the second story of the building. Yeah, Hollywood was substantially destroyed. I mean, as, as a as a functioning town, it took quite some time to get it back in any order at all. A couple other interesting things, uh, the Broward County Roof House, uh, excuse me, the Broward County Courthouse, its uh, roof was ripped off. Um, That's in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just going back to the pictures, a lot of devastation. One other thing was, you know, this storm, if you look at the death toll, uh, the greatest death toll was near Lake Okeechobee. Right, in Moorhaven. More, yeah. yeah, and the stat was uh, 150 bodies were found, and they assumed that same number had been swept away and the bodies not found. So 300 or so people had died around Moorhaven. And then two years later, another Category 4 hurricane came through, known as the Lake Okeechobee hurricane, mm-hmm. and killed many thousands more. Um, and just a, just a terrible time for South Florida for two years in a row. So, right, and, and it turns out there was... Like I said, in, in 1926, uh, the rest of this story is that this all happened in September of 1926, <clears throat> obviously. Then come October, here comes a monster hurricane that just devastated Havana, and it's coming from the south, and it was coming toward Miami. And you don't think people were freaked out mm. <laughs> by that time, right? And there are all these this, this thousands of people are running toward the Weather Bureau office downtown to figure out what to do and to look for shelter and whatnot. And it ended up just uh, kind of clipped the keys and missed just on off uh, to the east. So that was quite a time. And, and then we talked about the great hurricane of 1928, the, the Lake Okeechobee hurricane, that killed most of the people that it killed. It killed on the south shore, where mm. Moorhaven is kind of on the west shore. And then in 1929, another big hurricane uh, came by. So there's a whole stretch there of, and the 1929 one where they were they thought it was going to hit, but it ended up uh, not. In fact, we'll we'll talk about that some next week. So it was an uh, amazing time. But but that great Miami hurricane. Uh, if you're interested in hurricanes, there's a lot of information, a lot of pictures, film even taken about it. It's uh, it's quite a storm. Uh, I want to remind you, if you have any anything you'd like us to talk about on the the, uh, the podcast here, uh, send an email to weatherpod at WPLG.com. Weatherpod, put them together at WPLG.com. This podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. That's our podcast for this week, podcast number 14. Thank you, Luke. It's interesting. It's yeah. interesting as always. And we'll uh, see you again next week. We'll talk about that 1929 hurricane 
And we, um, I was going to tell you who our guest is going to be. Oh, yes, Marshall uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard, uh, former president of the AMS and all-around uh, meteorologist supreme. So it would be, be great to have Marshall on with us next week. So have a good week, everybody, and we'll talk to you then.